Okay, welcome back. So, uh, it is my extreme pleasure for this next bit of the product summit to welcome Matt Henderson to the stage. Can we give Hi, a everyone. Hand applause? So, as a bit of background, uh, Matt Henderson, currently you're the manager of Stripe for EMA yep. region, yes, right? Yes, I'm the GM for, for the EMEA region. But of course, like that's not how you started your career in all this. Like You didn't just start as like a big director who started to manage all these things, right? No, no. So I, I had a, kind of a, uh, an unusual functional kind of bounce off a few different steps. So um, I actually started on the investing side. I, I started my career with a, like a boutique investment bank that started working in venture capital. Um, I then kind of fell in love with tech startups decided that uh, that was what I wanted to do when I grew up. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, what first caught my attention um, was actually I, an article about Jeff Bezos. It was like 1999 and I read it and I thought, holy shit, this guy is like making tons of money but being very creative and, um, you know, it just sounded so adventurous. And so that really drew me in. Um, I ended up uh, joining Amazon as a product manager, spent seven years at Amazon and um, gradually um, sort of worked closer and closer with technology. And now actually I'm, I'm really more of a product and engineering sort of T-shaped GM. And so um, at Stripe, um, the solid line teams that I, that I lead um, is the product and engineering teams yeah. in Europe. And then the go-to-market stuff is a dotted line to me. Um, and uh, at the start of my career, I think you know I would have been considered a different, a different kind of functional profile. Yeah. So, so this is one of the things that really struck me about your history because I went back and sort of looked at you know the LinkedIn bio and you know the, the about me pages, and like you, you definitely started investment banking, made that transition to Amazon, went through very much like that progression of Amazon that went from just managerial stuff to much more technically focused. Yeah. Then went on to start your own business off the back of that range span. Which was then acquired by Google, a highly technical business, which very values those engineering principles, you know, and then went on to start doing your angel investing, then went on to Stripe. So you've sort of seen this entire gambit of both from the managerial side to hard product to hard technology and develop that career. Yeah. So for me, like when you when when someone has seen all those facets of what makes up both tech businesses, tech startups, and things like that, what I'd be really interested in hearing is now given that experience. When you approach to start something new, be it a company or a new product line or a new initiative, like how, how do you start? How do you start to gather the, the facts and the confidence and the impetus to start doing that work with you and your team? Mm -hmm. So um, I think it, it depends on the, the kind of circumstance. Um, in a bigger company, uh, often there's been like a mountain of thought before you. And so... Uh, you know, I'm finding now, and I'm only sort of approaching three months at Stripe. So, um, don't ask me a question about payments. But the, uh, uh, you know, whether it was in Stripe or Google or Amazon, um, a lot of the opportunity to innovate was um, about synthesizing the ideas of others, and and often things that had been considered in the past, and uh, recognizing how to bring things together and how to get timing right and how to um, uh, develop the kind of organizational conviction to make things happen. Um, the, a, as a startup, 
um, it's quite it's quite different. And uh, and I actually went through. So I did. I was at Google for five years. Um, had a great experience, but I was keen to do something more adventurous. And I thought that the natural path would be to go and start a company again. And so I started researching ideas and. I kind of I went down a similar sort of process to to what happened when I left Amazon, where it was more about deciding the timing was right first, rather than kind of being struck by an idea. Um, and I ended up I was in course of researching some ideas when I started to talk to the folks at Stripe. So, um, with that in mind, you know, to your question about where to start, um, I have found it useful to if. It, in thinking about a startup, to really start with broad, big spaces and, um, and and problems, and and work down from there, rather than um, uh, and I think that helps you to cast a wider net. Um, and the one of the things that I've sort of observed as an angel investor is um, there are. A lot of the characteristics um, that I have observed in, in looking at sort of hundreds of startups is uh, is around the sort of the the scale of the like of how far the product can be extended, and so that was something that I was very mindful of when I started to try to think about ideas to do a startup again myself. Right. So maybe to flush that idea out, what was the timing? that allowed range span to exist? Because I think it's a very interesting yeah. concept. Often yeah. people are like, I have this idea, how does it fit into society? Yeah. You're like, what's the timing allow at this stage? Yeah. Like, what, what was the spark there? So the timing, well, actually... Or so maybe the, give us also a, a brief history of what range span did. Yeah, so, it's so, quite interesting. Um, so range span, uh, we had kind of two products, which was intended to be one product, and then you know things change, as you'll probably have, have worked out. Um, we wanted to help uh, other retailers to uh, benefit from the kind of um, discovery insight that comes from having a marketplace. And so sort of a an often um, overlooked fact is that um, Amazon's long tail of products in its marketplace not only account for X percent of sales, but they also mean that the company observes emerging hits before other retailers. And so at any one time, typically two or three of its top 10 products in any one category are kind of breakout hits that it has and no other major retailer has. And so the, the, this kind of the long tail economics notion um, often misses that point and, and thinks that it's about the sum of tiny sales. So uh, we wanted to try to recreate this this uh, discovery mechanism we built a uh, essentially a dropship vendor marketplace which sounds a bit like meh now but back in 2011 it was a little more exciting and um, and software that would help uh, it was essentially like Amazon marketplace uh, over an API so um, so that any retailer could integrate it as a as a as a sort of on-demand supply chain and offer wider selection on their website and would provide the product data and uh, control the, the vendor shipping and all that kind of stuff. Um, and we had a uh, an analytics feature that was part of this service that was intended to be free um, that helped a retailer to understand 
what products out of all of the sort of million that you have available, what products should I adopt? And it turned out that that free analytics feature was the most valuable part of the company yeah. um, and retailers ended up paying for it. Um, sort of the, um, the highest ticket sale we had was half a million dollars a year um, and they'd pay for it to help to predict what their core inventory should be. Um, and it was also, it was a machine learning based um, uh, sort of analytics for retail assortment, which uh, was also quite novel in yeah. sort of 2012. Um, and yeah, so, so that was what Rangespan did. Um, the timing uh, was very much like personal circumstance. So I realized that from a, just a, uh, there are some things that get easier with starting a startup sort of as you progress in your career. Um, in terms of your financial flexibility, your credibility, your network, and so on. And then there's a whole lot of stuff that gets harder, especially the opportunity cost of like leaving whatever high paying job you're in. So, um, so I realized I was kind of at this like point where the lines cross and it was a sweet spot. So I decided on the timing first. Left, well, I, I sort of had a window of time where I set myself a deadline to come up with an idea. Range span was the idea. Um, hired a few ex-Amazon engineers and got going. And, um, you know, it takes kind of a, a leap of faith and a bit of naivety, especially at that point where, when I had a little less functional diversity. Um, but that's true of, I think, a lot of, a lot of startups and, and a lot of successful startups. Um, and then the other thing that was, that was good timing was we realized that, uh, machine learning was kind of, is sort of starting to uh, starting to break out itself as a as a trend in the tech sector and as um, as a sort of a, an area where talent was rare and and there was opportunity. Just as an interesting side point, because obviously now every investment deck has like machine learning somewhere stuck in it, no yeah, matter what yeah. you're doing. Like, did you ever use that as like a marketable sales feature? Or is it just, oh, yes. that was just a secret? Okay, so you were like, it's AI is helping your marketplace. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, actually, back then it wasn't AI. AI was considered to... A bunch um, of if statements are grand. helping your... Yeah, so so um, we, I don't know how many investors are in the room, but... Um, At least two. <laughs> investors are sometimes uh, easily impressed by, um, by uh, statistical model words and stuff. Um, now, it's... It's what actually it, it's interesting because I can pay some credit back because we, uh, our investor, I think, had more conviction about the scale of the upside potential being greater with the analytics product than our core product um, earlier than we did. Yeah. And so um, at first we thought it was because it was, kind of buzzwordy um, and then I think it turned out that it turned out that it was right I think for, for slightly different reasons in our case um, the path to adoption was a lot easier for retailers with our analytics product and something that we really um, that we really kind of uh, underestimated early on was the degree that like organizational resistance can end up whether it's in a, a partner organization or a customer organization can really influence 
yeah. the, the prospects for a product. And so, so that was something that made the analytics product sort of easier to get to market. So maybe in that vein, um, given the range pan story, was there, was there some like major lesson in going off and building your own thing and discovering, for example, your, your freemium product was actually the core part of the yeah. revenue model. Like, is there anything that you looked at or like, Oh, that was one of those lessons that I wish someone could reach over and be like, Hey, maybe yeah, you should yeah, try this yeah. instead. So, so, uh, a couple of lessons. One is, um, you like believe that, a small number of very talented people can can sometimes be the catalyst for for changing your product direction. And actually, our um, the guy that was leading our machine learning team, we kind of hired him before we knew what we would use him for. <laughs> um, but we just recognised that he was a rare talent, and there's probably something that we could that we could build in that space. And uh, and so that was sort of the early part of a snowball. And then the other thing is, uh, there's actually a, a danger. Um, what I've seen a lot of, and we made a mistake that I see a lot of startups uh, repeat, which is we, the initial idea we, we came up with relatively quickly. And then we focused mainly on sort of researching and validating and sort of fleshing out that initial idea. And um, then by the time, so we raised a, a fairly big round like at the end of our first year, which um, is quite early. And one of the problems with that is it kind of, it, it made us feel like we had product market fit prematurely. Yeah. And um, even before then, probably six months in, 99% of our of our energy was really like was really spent on the thing which we thought was our thing yeah. and uh it was fortunate that there was a bit that we carved out um which I attributed a lot to the hiring of this single person that um there was a bit we carved out for sort of sort of doing fun something fundamentally different um but we did that later than we should have. And what we also did not do was we didn't kind of re, uh, we didn't continue to, um, question, should we be doing something completely different? Right. And, and I don't mean like you're doing a, you're doing a enterprise software startup and you should do a consumer startup. I mean, like, um, within this kind of problem space that we're addressing is, is our whole, like, the whole angle we're taking with our solution, should we, is there something completely different that could save the problem in a different, solve the problem in a different way? Yeah, and, and that's definitely, like, very excellent advice because, like, you want to open up yourself up to those opportunities. But practically speaking, how would you implement that today? Like, how would you force the team to spend the time to get their heads up and look for that? Yeah. How would you change um, the culture there? Well, the, if you've got a founding team, then I think, you can kind of, uh, you can, because it's not what comes sort of habitually. You tend to sort of just get absorbed in executing on whatever you're doing. Like exactly. So as a, as a founding team, you sort of need to help each other develop a habit of re-questioning and, and sort of having this, you know, you need this weird, it's this paradox of having the confidence to be jumping into things, but at the same time, um, this paranoia that you could be going down a completely yeah. suboptimal path. 
Um, and, and so that the, the founding team dynamic really helps. And then the other thing I would say is you kind of have to demarcate people. So fractions of people, um, I think sometimes it works well, but f frequently it doesn't. And so, you know, at, at one point um, with, with our machine learning guy, um, we had him sort of only work on this particular thing and that helped to create momentum. And, you know, at bigger companies, the way that pans out is it's more of a group of people. Um, for us, it was really sort of one person plus 30% of my time. Um, and that sort of got the, got the, and by the way, it was also actually that one person, 30% of my time and some of our first customers' time. Yeah. Um, because I think they really influenced our thinking in it as well. Yeah. How, how how did that loop work? Just to dive into that, like how do the customers' feedback and information get injected into that process? So we, I remember quite vividly. Uh, so Argos was our first uh, was our first customer. By the way, um, not normally associated with the hotbed of innovation. Um, <laughs> and um, and and Tesco was our second customer. And Argos, I was I was in Milton Keynes meeting a. a junior person and uh, but she was much more embedded in understanding uh, the 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 particular organizational resistance problem we faced which was um if you've ever read moneyball um we were kind of like the 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 moneyball for for a retail buyer so we were um bringing the threat of just huge selection when actually they liked being the arbiter of taste and so um, she really uh, made that much clearer to me and also um, uh, sort of explained how the type of insights, um, like the way they wanted to be more oriented around sort of their competitors as opposed to sort of what could come through our, our um, supply chain software. Interesting. So in that vein, sort of wrapping up the range pan story, like, Often at these events, we hear about these sort of successful, amazing little moments that changed the company and delivered some sort of step change in your business. But the ones that I'm always fascinated in are the ones that almost crashed the business yeah. and how you then recovered from that and learned from that. Yeah. It, it, maybe not even range span or your time at Amazon or Google. Like, was there ever an event that was just so tragic that really changed how you approached your work moving forward? Um, so there's a, there's a couple of things. Maybe one that, that's a little different from your question, but I think it's kind of funny. I remember in, I think it was 2005 uh, or end of 2004 or something, um, Jeff Bezos was over in the UK and Amazon then was like, uh, worked out as 60 times smaller than it is now. Um, so it was actually slightly smaller then than Stripe is now. And um, Jeff was over in the UK and he did this talk and he said, we're going to launch this new shipping service is called Prime. So we're going to launch it in a year or two. And we were walking back to the office because we didn't have a room big enough for everybody. And I said to some of my colleagues, that's the stupidest crap I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> I said, it'll never catch on. Like It's a loyalty program where you have to pay up front. And it just there was no precedent for it, I felt. And so I thought that it would never work. And now it's probably the, like, the most successful loyalty scheme in the world. Um, so uh, it's a success, but the point is, like, I was horribly wrong about it. Um, and 
And it's been quite a lasting lesson for me, um, you know, the things that you screw up personally. Uh, there is a couple of projects more that have, that have, that have not worked out well um, that I think are interesting as well. Also at Amazon, we had a business um, that was an enterprise solutions business where we, we built uh, essentially e-commerce websites for other retailers. Um, and at one point, and it was in my purview when I was running the marketplace, we were running Marks and Spencer's website and Mothercare's website. And, um, and that, that sort of business unit of Amazon ended up failing. We had some retailers in the US as well. It ended up failing um, because it, it just, when you're in a big business and you're trying to do something new, it either has to reinforce the core or it has to be like a, a crazy huge opportunity. Yeah. And so uh, AWS, although it does help Amazon's core to be more efficient, um, what was then Amazon's core to be more efficient, um, it, it's, it's also just, it was such a crazy big opportunity that there was a ton of conviction around it um, from Jeff down. And however, what we were doing was sort of the very customers that we were trying to help were uh, Amazon's competitors. And there was like extreme, I would say, apathy sort of at the best. It would be the best way to describe it yeah. um, from the rest of the organization. So it was very hard to get things done. And, and it just, that's not a setup for success. Yeah. Um, and, and indeed, it failed. On the story of Prime, was there a moment where that opinion flipped for you? And like, was there a catalyst that caused that flip or was it just over it time? It took a long time. It, it, it honestly, and Amazon, I think, is, is really good at these things. And, and Jeff in particular is very good at these things where he sees the difference between kind of the way that there are some opportunities that require a large amount of patience and also that the like signs of progress are very cumulative. So, you you might go for the first three years and the numbers still look small. Um, and I remember it, the same thing happened again with fulfillment by Amazon for the third-party services. It was like 0.5 or 1% of third-party shipped volume. Yeah. And there was this daily, um, we called it the BlackBerry report because Blackberries were a thing back then. And this daily report would say what percentage of, of shipped units it was. And if it sort of jumped like by 0.1 of a percent, Jeff would respond with a smiley face. And if it like went down a little bit, he'd just respond with a question mark and that would ruin my day. And um, yeah, and, uh, and, but, but I think the, the kind of the, the moral of that story was that um, he kind of knew that this like, seemingly very like progress off a small base would take a very long time to end up um, uh, on a steep curve. Uh, but like Prime, that's exactly what happened. And now Amazon fulfills, I don't know, something like 60 or 70% of its marketplace business. So it must be fair to say that like when you're looking at those big product innovations at Amazon, like you're almost looking for not so much immediate performance, but that that trend of accumulating effect that could turn into that hockey stick yeah, curve yeah. that... Everyone yeah, wants. and and the you know when I started at Google, it, what what has been an endless source of of kind of um, of interest for me is how different Google and Amazon are. Like you yeah. you could hardly get two more different companies. 
um, which really amazed me because of both being sort of West Coast successful tech companies. Uh, but Amazon is particularly good at doing a relatively small number of very sort of rigorously thought through, um, like slow burn, big investment innovations. Yeah. And uh, and has, a, frankly, a very high success rate with them. Google uh, is typically not good at those things and, uh, however, is good at doing a, a thousand huge portfolio of very small things, a low fraction of which work out, um, but some of them work out very well. Um, and they're, they're very different innovation models. Yeah, so on that point, actually, because I think... Innovation is is the core lifeblood of a young startup. And then often you get to that sort of seed-ish stage where you have some product market fit, maybe some revenue, some proof in the product. And I know I've been there with, with List and, and with Habit where you sort of go, oh, what's next? Like that original sort of idea is kind of playing out, but how do I continue that trend? So yeah. that idea, like that idea of continually innovation, like continually injecting new information to the company and then making better decisions based on that and, and so on and so forth, how do you maintain that at scale? Yeah. At Stripe and at Amazon, we're talking huge product lines and huge teams yeah. working on that. So uh, culture is really important. And um, yeah, I, I mean, I think when I kind of fell in love with Stripe, um, there was two main things that for me resembled Amazon back in 2004. Um, and, and one was that there was this huge runway for the product to be extended. Um, but the other was that it really felt like a culture that would be able to continuously pursue that opportunity. Um, and I think a lot of companies, you know, even companies that are very successful, they get to um, sort of become billion-dollar companies, but then they plateau, and it requires a, a really sort of unusual set of circumstances a kind of this like founder or um, senior executive like combination of kind of um, of a self improvement culture and this kind of earnestness about the future um, and probably also just a very very um, like hunger to to try to achieve that future that um, that is is just very unusual and and Patrick and John have it in spades, and and then I found that when I met more of the exec team, it was really replicated, um, and it reminded me a lot of of Bezos. How does how does that play out on a on a day to day basis though? Like, how do you observe that innovative led culture play out in the the team molecular level when you're actually building stuff? Yeah, uh, so urgency and um, a desire for criticism, and um, also a desire for kind of um, parallel efforts. Yeah. And so, so that uh, has, those are sorts of things that have, that have surprised me at Stripe. I think they, it, it also existed to some degrees at, at, uh, at Amazon and, and Google. Um, but it, those are the sorts of traits that I think when as a company gets bigger can help to encourage innovation from the rest of the org when it's not sort of you as a founder um, or as a senior exec. It's not you so much doing the innovating. 
it's more that you need to create an org that that is going to be doing the innovating. So criticism is an interesting point that you mentioned because you know there's a couple of frameworks now that are growing in popularity, like you know Ray Dalio's principles and Radical Candor, and and the core to building anything innovative better is to be critical about it, to have that feedback. Yeah. How, is there any tips you have for like the growing teams in this room that allow you to keep honest criticism about the product in a helpful way? Yeah. Um, one one thing is actually just to sort of declare, like embody it in some kind of values, and and or, or like we we perhaps kind of overly grandly um, on our first website of our startup in like the month we incorporated it, we put we put values on our on our sort of team page, um, and but some of the people we hired said that that was part of the reason why they kind of took a risk on joining us. And uh, the some of the values looked um, awfully similar to Amazon's values, but but we did we did innovate a bit on them. Um, but so you you can sort of declare an appetite for continuous innovation um, and a kind of a um, uh, like being humble about about um, about feedback. And then it gets it really uh, emanates from from senior exec behavior as well and so um, there are little traits like uh, it mostly um, actually it, it comes through from asking for feedback and asking for criticism so one um, one tip actually this is kind of a, a management tip that I only learned myself recently but um, the every organization that does surveys of its employees this something comes through saying that people want more feedback right and um, so uh, people don't normally sort of give enough feedback to that people think helps their careers, um, but actually the thing that correlates really highly with people feeling that they're getting enough feedback is if those same people are asking for feedback. So you kind of you you kind of need to help everyone to realize that um, the the kind of in this this chicken and egg situation is actually asking for it that um, that that proceeds. The receiving of it, right. and um, and I think this that like that's kind of feedback, but but it's very much the same thing with more sort of like uh, fundamental criticism about the product or about something being wrong. Got it. Cool, well, Matt. Thank you so much for sharing t- yeah, coming here and spending time with us. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs>